0: All right, Uh, we have time for questions here, our last half hour. Keith, I'm done with the circles, Keith. No more circles.
1: I have two questions, if I can find them. I spent most of my time in a Baptist church in my lifetime. And there, one of their don't know what you call them but it it's, it's a, uh, a standard that they go by and standard, that is okay. they believe that the individual makes his own interpretation
0: the individual
1: makes his own interpretation of the Bible okay and that is their faith okay
0: do you want me to comment on that mm-hmm okay that would be the first question first right. Question. The, He's got another question, so he's not going to give that mic back to you.
1: (laughs) You can't have it.
0: (laughs) Um, There is a sense that when push comes to shove, everybody has to make their own interpretation. What that means is that every individual has to decide what what they believe about what a verse means. Mm -hmm. That does not mean, though, that everybody is free to make up any interpretation that they want and that all interpretations are equal, and that's where it sometimes goes. Well, that's your interpretation. I have my interpretation. And I said, well, okay. Uh, uh, just be uh, when I was asked this once in a, in a, in a very large audience, and a, a woman said something about inter- asked me the question about interpretation, she said, well, it, that's just your interpretation. And I said, so... Um, what you're saying is you think that homosexuals should be executed. Now, there's over a 1,000 people in the audience here. And it was a dead silence when I said that. She said, no, no, I, I mean, and then she made her point again. I said, S- OK, yeah, that's right. So homosexuals should be ed- educated. She said, what are you talking about? I said, well, that's my interpretation. And Then all of a sudden, everybody started laughing because they realized the point I was making. There are some variations of interpretation given a text that might be legitimate, but it doesn't mean any old interpretation will do. And so I can't take her statement there and completely malign it into something else. If the church is saying that every, human, every Christian is responsible for his own understanding of the Bible and what it means, then I think they're right about that. If they're saying that everybody has an equal shot at giving it their own meaning and no meaning is any better than the others, they're dead wrong. Interpretation needs to be done within the context of the community because individually we make mistakes. And so we want to hear what other people have to say so we can assess. Um, I mentioned, I think, on our way back home, we're going to talk a little bit about tongues. I, I, I want to hear what pastor has to say about that so I can then make the assessment for myself. Ultimately, it will be my assessment, what I think makes sense in light of the texts. But uh, I, I, I'm going to benefit from what other people have to say, especially people who have given more thought to it. Um, so that's, that's the appropriate balance, I think.
1: So you had a second question? Yeah. Uh, this one is a personal one, in that <clears throat> you were giving the young people advice in terms of uh, marriage uh-huh. and so on, and the, uh, the importance of them making a, de- a determination of the spouse, especially yes. the women, versus picking out somebody who's going to be over them and right, so on. Right. Well, if that was were the a wisdom case, consideration, right? realizing where I was as a high school student senior, and meeting my future wife, mm-hmm. I she would have never have married me mm-hmm. because I had nothing, nothing whatsoever, and as we did get married and she became my spiritual leader mm-hmm. in that she had a faith that uh, never ended it seemed now I was a science teacher lower campus the University of Washington everything had to be proven and so on and so forth okay and I put her into tears for about 20 years mm-hmm. because how did you know why do you say that mm-hmm. how do you know that it's mm-hmm. the way it's supposed to be and through her persistence and her faith, mm-hmm. being strong, she convinced me that faith was mm-hmm. something that you you believe in. Mm-hmm. You don't have to prove it. Otherwise, there's other people that I ran into that right, right. Did
0: gave but me in any event, energy. the fact that she married you, a non-Christian, still worked out good yeah. 20 years mm-hmm. later, and she was the agent that God used in your That's life. Right. Okay, so do you want me to respond to
1: that? in terms of the beginning, making that decision yeah, right. at the beginning.
0: Well, I, I, I'm going I'm to stick to... Yeah, go ahead, Keith. I, uh, you're done. Uh, <laughs> um, look, at I'm going to stick to my guns on this one. God can take any bad situation and redeem it. Look at uh, what happened to Joseph. Uh, Joseph had a lot of bad things done to him. Were those bad things redeemed by God? Ultimately, yes. In God's sovereign purposes, God arranged for Joseph to be the savior of the very people that rejected him. Do you see a type of Christ in there? But But does that, the fact that God took the bad stuff and made good out of it, does that mean that the bad stuff wasn't still bad? It was still bad. God can take wrong decisions, and it's interesting in your testimony, though. You made this woman miserable for twenty years.
1: In the spiritual life,
0: in her spiritual life, but uh, so she suffered for you, and as it turned out, through her godliness and prayers, God rescued you out of that. But um, but uh, and so you got the good end of the deal, you know, not her. (laughs) It's like the guy who said to his wife, why did God make you so stupid and me so smart? You know, And the wife said, well, God made me stupid so I'd marry you, and you smart so you'd marry me, <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, but, but strictly speaking, that was the wrong choice. The problem with testimonies like this is it's good because it turned out good and God rescued that. The liability is other people will hear that and say, well, then it'll work out good for me if I disobey God and I marry a non-Christian. And for every one of these testimonies, there's 10 testimonies of miserable lives of hardship and difficulty as a godly Christian woman tries to raise her children and pursue her relationship with God in the face of the resistance of her husband. So it is never a good idea to disobey God on this, even though thankfully in your Case and wonderfully, God has has come in and taken something that didn't start out right and made it good.
1: It did happen. I had five boys, and I didn't. I was not there for the five boys. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Keith. Yes.
2: Do you have some um, colleges that you would recommend? um... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're um, Ken Ham's. Yeah, I, Ham's, I can. And there, and I, I, I Biola will. didn't make the list for Ken Ham. Biola's Ham's. on
0: the list. There's no question. Biola is on the yeah. list.
2: But um, for Ken Ham's listing of answers in Genesis, he's a creationist, seven day literal. Yeah. Um, he wrote the book Already Compromised. Yeah. And, okay, <laughs> okay. And so Biola. Sephardi wrote that.
0: Huh? Sephardi wrote that, not Ham.
2: Ken Ham and Be- Brett Beamer.
0: Oh, okay. Well, there's a book called uh, Compromise. "Refuting Compromise," also written by Sephardi, But go okay. ahead. On the same issue. Okay. About. Yeah. Ken Ham's going to have. He's going to have a different list because he 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 has a different list of things that he thinks are important. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, young Earth creationism is not on my list for colleges. What the college believes about evolution is, mm-hmm. and so I say that there are five. That there are four things that you need to look for. You need to ask with regards to the Christian university that you send your child to. The first, the first thing is their view of, of Scripture. And I'm looking for something like inerrancy. If your school is not an inerrancy school, then this is a problem, okay? And this is a descending importance, all right? The second thing is the Great Commission. Does the school teach pluralism or inclusivism? That is, does it teach something other than you have to have faith in Jesus in order to be saved? And by the way, you can't just look at the statement of faith. You have to look at what's taught. Because at Azusa, for example, where I graduated from in 1976, uh, they have a a pretty good statement of faith, but they don't practice it. Professors don't do what the statement says. And it's very left-leaning now in its politics and its understanding about things, celebrating same-sex marriage and the like. So you've got the authority of the word. You have the the Great Commission. Uh, the third thing is their view about uh, about uh, evolution. And if they are, th- and I'm saying, if they're theistic evolutionists, then that's a b- bad mark as far as I'm concerned. Now, many of you might want to say they. They, if they're not, they have to be young earth creationists. Okay, that might be your standard, certainly as Ken Ham's. However, I will just make an observation about this, not taking sides on the issue, but there's been a very unfortunate thing that, that has been promoted, promulgated, that is, a, that is, a, is, is, a, is an embarrassing mistake and it, that doesn't have integrity. And that is the characterizing of people who do not believe in young earth creationism as evolutionists. I have run into this time and time again, and that is just rank dishonesty because the people who do this are in a position of authority to know the difference between young earth creationists, old earth evolutionists, and old earth intelligent design. I'm not saying who's right and who's wrong. I'm just simply saying you cannot misrepresent somebody else's view and say if you believe in old earth, you must be an evolutionist. That is dishonorable. Even if the old earth, intelligent design people are wrong, you cannot mischaracterize their view. That's called straw man, and this is done all the time. And I was actually on a TV show once, uh, and and, uh, there were a number of us. I was actually the only, in that particular show, old earth guy. And we were all really campaigning against evolution, which made us, uh, we had a united front, and that was good. And that's the way I like to work with people who don't agree with me on this. Fine, I'm not going to fight with you. Let's beat up on the bad guy. Let's beat up on the evolutionists. And so I had this delightful guy. Who's the, who's the Dr. Dino guy? Do you know who Dr. Dino is? He, uh, not Ken Ham, but I thought you guys would know that, you know. <laughs> but well, This guy's in jail right now, actually. Anyway, it was his son that was there. And this guy was the most delightful man. I had so much fun with him. I really liked him. And I said, next time you're in L.A., let's go out for dinner, you know, hang out. I like this guy a lot. And we got along great. He's got a, he a, a, a Young Earth Creation ministry down in Florida. And so um, I was sitting, and so we were sitting there in the green room watching another, another two people that were on the air at the time, and somebody made a comment about theistic evolution. And he leaned over to me, very friendly, and he said, uh, he said, you, you, that must be you then, Right? And I looked at him I said, why would you think I'm a theistic evolutionist? And he said, because you're old earth. And I said, brother, shame on you. You're getting up on the TV representing a point of view. You're a leader in this and you don't know that there's a third group of people that are people who are old earth creationists, intelligent design. Now he took it really well and I was friendly with him, but I said, look, you've got to get this straight. Now it doesn't mean I'm right, it just means you have to know the field and you have to represent the opposing view accurately. So that 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 theistic evolution is off the chart as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Um that would be uh the Francis Collins whole um deal, you know, the um what is their website? Does anybody know what Francis Collins um, by 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 logos yeah, that whole thing, to me, that's beyond the pale, okay? Uh, and principally because what they end up doing to Adam, okay? And the final thing is homosexuality. Now, that's the last one on my list because it's the most theologically insignificant of the four, but it is a, is a, a watershed issue because it's going to tell me how the campus is responding to culture. Are they, are they, are they dropping back because they're getting bullied, or are they willing to toe the line and be faithful? And if they are giving in, in any sense, to the homosexuality issue, they're saying it's okay, it's genetic, it, people are born that way, we're in favor of same-sex marriage and all that stuff. Man, I don't want anything to do with them because these people are folding on that, they're going to fold on other things too. So those are the four things that I'm looking for in my own assessment. This is what I encourage people to be looked for. The authority of the Bible, the Great Commission, um, the, uh, the no theistic evolution, and um, the issue of homosexuality. And um, uh, look, I think Biola is a fabulous school. And they have a Tories honor program that some parents have, stud, have had students in. That's really great. My son went to Westmont. I don't know where. He graduated in '06 or '04. Uh, I don't know entirely where they're at now. But um, I think that um, uh, Hillsdale College is a fantastic place. It's not a Christian school, but it's very conservative and it's Christian friendly. Uh, Grove City College in Pennsylvania, beautiful campus, good people, solid Christian foundation. Uh, Patrick Henry, you know, I've heard things about that school, and I think they're probably Young Earth, and uh, and there may be more. I just have not, I don't have visibility of them, but I do know that a lot of schools that are Christian, so-called Christian schools, are do not meet the grade anymore. They are falling fast. And we have to be very, very careful. The problem with Christian schools being secularized is you don't expect them to be so. And so it's a Trojan horse situation. You send your kids to an environment where you think they'll be safe, and then the, the professors destroy their confidence in Jesus and God in the Bible. And How can this happen? Well, I'll tell you, th- this isn't going to happen at Biola, at least not, not in the near future. And then that stuff has been resisted aggressively at Biola. So I'm I'm proud of the institution that I got my master's from and I'm also adjunct faculty on. There are others like that, but there you go. There's a couple to think about. Yeah. Question in the back.
2: I have a question uh, regarding, I guess, the relationship between God's sovereign will and our decision making and then the outcome of our decision making. So let's say I'm faced with a decision, could be anything could be, should I go to McDonald's for lunch or whatever.
0: Um, you're drifting off there. Oh. A de- decision what?
2: So I, let's say I have a decision to make, and, and it could be anything, but uh, I make a decision, and there's a certain outcome. Let's say I decide...
0: It, and it does uh, not turn out or it does? Either way. Okay.
2: Now, within the context of God's sovereign will, I presume that the outcome falls under the control of God's sovereign will. Uh,
0: everything falls under that. So my decision
2: thing. itself then... Now, let's say I make a decision. Let's say it's um, an immoral decision.
0: An immoral decision. Right.
2: The fact that I made an immoral decision also part of God's sovereign will. Yes. Okay, that's what I'm saying. Absolutely.
0: But it doesn't mean that God's okay with it. It Right. means that God allows you to do something wrong.
2: Yes. Yes. So, so, I mean. uh, Which means the
0: sin of other people against us is still under God's sovereign will, just like the sin of Joseph's brothers were against him, was under God's sovereign will. Okay. Man meant it for bad, God meant it for good.
2: That's really the part that I want to clarify, was that the decision itself is also, as opposed to I make whatever decision I make and the outcome itself is what God controls. It's the decision itself is also what God controls.
0: Every decision that anyone makes at any time in history is under the sovereign Got will it. of God, um, That, by very definition. And um, so this is why it doesn't... It's not directly involved in the issue of decision-making because even if you make a bad decision, that's part of God's sovereign will, what God allows. Um, and God can redo bad situations, as I mentioned earlier, but, uh, but even if you make a good decision following the system, it doesn't mean that it's all going to work out the way you want it to. It, it, you may fall fat, flat on your face, even if it's a good decision, all things being equal. Uh, nothing is warranted here about the future. Um, except for that you bring honor to God when you make decisions God's way. What happens with the ultimate decision? Nobody knows. I was engaged three times. And there was a lot of pain in those first two engagements because it didn't work out, you know? So, so was I out of God's sovereign will? Then, no, I was always in God. Everybody's always under God's sovereign will. He can use all things to make the right kind of difference in our lives if we are surrendered to him properly.
2: Hi, over here. Um, My understanding is you have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old girl.
0: Eight and five girls, right. Both adopted, by the way, out of crisis pregnancies.
2: In answering your previous question, you just mentioned a son.
0: A son? Oh, I'm sorry. I have a stepson. My wife was a single mom. I met her at a crisis pregnancy center where I was speaking and doing the banquet for the fundraiser. And he he was, uh, I think, 10 when we met. He was uh, 16 when we got married, finally which means that all my wife's girlfriends were mad at me because it took so long to take her to the altar. And, uh, and so he is my stepson. He's 31 now. And, uh, and then I have adopted, and he has his mother's maiden name. I haven't adopted him, but I, we have adopted the two little girls with our name.
2: Those are her kids, too? know, you adopted.
0: We've adopted. My wife and I weren't able to have kids. We lost a child, and, and, and then we decided to adopt. And so we adopted two children. Thank you for clarifying. Thank yes, you. Uh, I have a question about determining God's will. Okay. Uh, in the Old and New Testaments, uh, one way to determine God's will was to cast lots. Why do we no longer cast lots? Well, uh, in the Old Testament, you let me back up for a second. Even I'm going to take exception with the way you phrase the question because. And the way that I have been teaching here, there is no God's will to determine in the sense that most people think. That doesn't mean that under some circumstances, God did not have a particular intention about something, and it was right in some unique situations in the Old Testament for someone to make a direct inquiry, okay? Um, it's interesting, by the way, when Solomon gets the vision from God, that and God says, what what do you want I will give you? Because Solomon had already made the temple and dedicated it, and he said, what do you want? Now, Solomon's got a direct audience with God, right? So you would think Solomon learns to just, oh, I can cast lots, I can, I can get the Urim and Thummim, and I could use that, and I can make all my decisions. But what is it that uh, Solomon asks for? He asks for, he asks for wisdom. Why does he ask for wisdom? So that I can lead this people. See, even Solomon understood that unique circumstances of revelation were not the standard way to lead. He needed a wisdom to lead the people. So there were unique circumstances in the the Old Testament where there was an appeal directly to God. I, frankly, I don't know what motivated that or why those conditions were different. They just seemed to be. It was unique. It wasn't usual. It was occasional. There were some times, and David should have um, uh, uh, gone to God with regards to a decision, and he didn't. Uh, there are other times where he seemed to make decisions on his own and it was appropriate. I don't really know the distinctions. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to draw a New Testament model from Uh, prescriptively from Old Testament descriptive events. In the New Testament, you only have one example of that, and that is prior to Pentecost. And it's just prior to Pentecost, but it's there in Acts chapter 1, where they cast lots to find the other disciple. But it's interesting what happens in that situation. I alluded to it earlier. What they do is they decide they have to replace a disciple. Now, some people think that wasn't even appropriate because Paul was the replacement. By God, But all we know is they did this. And then they had a a criterion. And what was the criteria that they had for the person who would replace Judas? There were two criteria. They were objective. They had to be with them from the beginning. They had to have been with the apostolic band. They weren't part of the 12. They were probably part of the larger. But they had to have been with the apostolic band from the beginning, and they had to be a what? A A witness to the resurrection. Right. And when they had all their candidates, when they applied those two criterion, they whittled them all down to two. Okay, now what? We got two people left that fulfill these requirements. So what do we do? They flip a coin. That's what they did. Now, I don't know anybody that's saying we should be flipping coins now to decide what God's will is for us, uh, but there were there were... Practices like that in the scripture in the past. I don't see any reason that it should be part of our system now, since nobody in the scripture, other than that, that incident, which is questionable about its propriety, uh, nobody else has done that kind of thing. So, uh, who's got the mic over here? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Just uh, maybe. I think sometimes there's, there can be confusion about the difference between God giving you wisdom specifically, as opposed to just. Um, having illumination from Scripture, kind of, you used a verse in in your first uh, session about from Second Timothy about when Paul's writing to Timothy and he said, "Think on the things that I say," and it, and the Lord will give you wisdom, yeah,
0: yeah, right? Insight, right?
2: Right. So, just I think maybe that might help clarify because we 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 do have, you know. So, from your understanding from that passage, what is Paul meaning when he says that to Timothy?
0: Well, there is a role that the Holy Spirit ha- has to illuminate us, and we can. We can depend on that, but I don't think that allows us... I don't think we can cite passages like that and, and then use them to authenticate our understanding as the right God-given understanding. And this is what sometimes people do. There certainly is a role, but look at We have differences of opinion about things, and we all have the same spirit. So now what? We can't all be right. Uh, so that then we have to adjudicate between ourselves and then trust the work of the Spirit in in the body. Uh, It it seems like an imperfect process. I mean, it is. This is one reason why in in the Upper Room Discourse in John 15, or maybe it's 14, where Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will lead you to unto all truth, uh, many Christians mistakenly think that Paul is describing the role of the Spirit in the Christian's life. Now, I just want you to think about this, because they think, They say, "Look at the whole. Here's Paul's promise: He will lead us to all truth. So I'm tuning into the Spirit so I can be led to all truth." I said, "And my here's my response. I said, if this is what the verse means, then the Holy Spirit has failed." If what that passage means is that the one Holy Spirit would lead all Christians who have the Spirit into the one truth, then clearly the Holy Spirit has failed because we have a wide diversity of opinions, even though we share the same Spirit. Clearly that couldn't be what he means unless you want to acknowledge that God failed. I think what was going on there is in that particular statement, he was addressing the apostles not as Christians, but as apostles. And notice what he says, I will bring to, I think this is is the way it's stated, the Holy Spirit will lead you to all truth and bring to remembrance all the things that what? I have taught you. So he is talking about a unique group of people that was trained specifically by him, who he is giving authority to speak for him. And isn't our doctrine the analogy of faith in Scripture? That the Scripture is not going to contradict? That Paul had no more of the truth, or Paul was no more or less accurate than Peter or John? They all were equally speaking the truth of God, and they are not in conflict? Well, that would be consistent with that interpretation. For the rest of us, gee, it's kind of hard. It would be nice to have Jesus right here, and he could settle all the, all the disputes, but th- that's not the way God has chosen to do it. And so I don't think that we can, we can simply claim, well, I've bought the enlightenment of the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has led me to truth on my opinion, and in virtue of my confidence of that, then you have to believe what I believe. The only way I can legitimately appeal to you is from the meanings of the words in the text in sentences and paragraphs flow of thought because that's the way they were given okay, okay
2: one more question
0: I have a parting word for you so after answering this question lunch is an hour long so there'll be plenty of food <laughs> it's a quick question about prayer uh, you know Matthew Lord's Prayer talks about you know thy will, will be done yes so what's, when that will what's that referring to is it referring to the sovereign God's sovereign will okay keep going how does he thy will be done what on earth as in heaven. As it is in heaven. Yeah, what, heaven. what will of God is, is... Do we have to pray for God's sovereign will to be done on earth? No. no. God's sovereign will is always accomplished. It's guaranteed by God. So the other will that we know of from the scripture is not sovereign will, but what? Moral will. Is God's moral will done in heaven? Yes. yes. So it's a request that God's... Mor- I'm going to put the adjective moral because I think that's the only category. That God's moral will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. This is a request for righteousness to manifest itself here on earth, okay? That's what I think it is. I don't know what else it could be, frankly. You see how process, by process of elimination and a closer look at the little larger context, it helps us to solve that problem, okay? Let me offer this last thought, and we've talked about a number of things here, a lot of real important things about how to engage others, and Try to impart some skills that you might find useful. Columbo tactic. Uh, we've talked a lot about a very important area of uh, Christian conduct, how you make decisions to guide your life. I hope that many of you have chosen to kind of extend your relationship with us at Stand to Reason by receiving our free uh, training materials in the, in the mail, and we can continue to help you be better ambassadors for Christ. Um. But if none of that happens, I, I, I wanna leave you with an account of something that happened to me so that I would encourage so that it will encourage you to to see how remarkable an impact you can have as an individual Christian, even in the small things. I became a Christian in three weeks it'll be twenty it'll be forty years. So nineteen seventy-three, September twenty-eighth. I became a follower of Christ. During that summer of 73, I I was in the process of starting to work through these issues and think more carefully about it, but I was also a 23-year-old long-haired hippie in Southern California, and uh, I was, uh, on this particular day, body surfing at Santa Monica Beach, and I lived in West L.A., just a little few miles inland from the coast, and so my only means of transportation was the bus, so I got on the bus and was driving my bus back, and I was reading a psychology book Fritz Perl's verbatim it's a new force third force psychology craziness that I was into at the time but in front of me was a young lady who was reading her bible now she was cute and so I didn't care about her bible but I cared about her I mean I didn't really care about her I cared about me and that's why I was talking to her because <laughs> I was trying to pick up on her uh, to put it simply and um so she she um she wasn't interested in me except for to share the Lord with me, and she did that for the bulk of our our trip, and in the process of talking to me about the Lord, she told me about a Bible study that she had been going to uh, in Westwood Village, which was not far away, right by the campus of UCLA at a place called the Light and Power House. It was a Wednesday night Bible study, and she was part of that. Of course, I had no interest in that at all. Uh, in fact, it was my younger brother who had been teaching me about Christ and talking and witnessing to me, and I told this young lady whose name was Adrian Thatcher, I told Adrian, I said, Well, you and my brother would make a good match, you know. I'm, you're not my, you know, kind of... Uh, he, you, you, you'd like each other because you're into this Jesus stuff, you know. Well, it came time to get off at the bus stop, and we lived actually close to each other, so I got off at her stop... And I walked her to her door. You know, uh, Hope Springs Eternal here, you know, and still. (laughs) And uh, when we got to the door of her apartment, she turned around. She said, thank you very much. She shook my hand. She closed the door, and I never saw her again in my life. A few months later, I became a Christian. And a few weeks after that, I was in Westwood Village walking around, and there was a Christian bookstore that I had never noticed before. And so I thought, oh, you know, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, and I looked at the books in the window. Wow, Christian books. These guys are Christians. So now I'm a brand new Christian during the Jesus movement. And I don't know, some of you remember the Jesus movement, but when, when it was just the nature of things that when, when uh, you became a Christian, it was almost like you got, like, charged with electric, electricity and struck by lightning. You know, I'm a Christian. Hallelujah. You know, that kind of thing. Wild and crazy time. So I walk into the store. I'm all jumping around, and I ask the young lady, I said, is this a Christian bookstore? She said, yes. I said, I'm a Christian. And, <laughs> and um, her name was Bonnie Bratz. I told her, I said, do you know anything about this light, lighthouse Bible study or whatever around here? And she said, oh, the light and powerhouse. I said, yeah. She said, I live there really? What's that? She said, it's an old fraternity house that's been converted into a school. They have a men's wing and a woman's wing, and we we study the Bible during the week, and we have this public Bible study on Wednesday night. And the following Wednesday night, I walked in, and I sat down, and I went to that Bible study. And that was the first Bible study I'd ever been to in my entire life. Now, this was in uh, early, uh, October, mid-October 73. By February 1st, I had moved into that house and I lived there for two and a half years. And I got intense discipleship. I got Bible training from teachers who most of them were Dallas grads. They were—they were—they uh, <laughs> had made a mass exodus from Campus Crusade for Christ because they had all got mad at Bill Bright at the same time. But these guys were people with good street sense and good skills, and they were heavy into evangelism, discipleship, and transferable concepts because of their uh, exposure to crusade. And so I found myself as a brand-new Christian in the middle of the Jesus movement in the midst of the most productive environment it's possible to imagine for my growth. And it wasn't just that I was growing, but I was surrounded by people that were strong enough to manage me because I was a, I was a handful. Um, and for two and a half years, I lived there, and this is where I did my first Bible, public Bible teaching, I I actually, the first time I taught the Bible was at that public Bible study two and a half years later, when Hal Lindsey, who taught the Bible study, did show up one night, and I was asked to stand up in his place. So my first Bible teaching was when I had to stand up as a student with long hairs and blue jeans, actually I had coveralls on, like, you know, bib overalls, that was the style back then, and uh, to stand in for the number one best-selling author of the entire decade. These people came to hear Hal Lindsey. They heard me instead. <laughs> you know. But um, th- then that summer I went, to Eastern, I went to Europe for three and a half months, and I'd spent five and a half weeks behind the iron curtain working with Christians and communist countries. I spent two other summers working full summers in Hawaii and outreach projects, and, and, and uh, then I went overseas. I lived in Thailand, and now stand to reason in well, what you know. Now, why did all this happen? Why am I saying all of this? Because none of this would have happened if a young lady named Adrian Thatcher had not shared something pivotal with me when a young hippie was trying to pick up on her on a bus in Santa Monica. Her single act of faithfulness, that small thing which I guarantee she does not remember, was the kind of thing that, watch this, was sovereignly used of God. To set my life on a certain tra- trajectory and had not I met Adrian Thatcher and she had been faithful in a small way, I would not be standing here in front of you today. I don't know where I'd be, but I wouldn't be here because this was the trajectory God put me on through the faithfulness of another Christian. And I want you to be aware that you can be an Adrian Thatcher in people's lives. You're thinking, I'm not a Greg Coco, I'm not a Pastor Joe, I can't do the music, I don't write books, I don't, uh, neither did Adrian Thatcher. You have no idea how God is going to use the small acts of faithfulness in your life. You commit yourself to be faithful in small things and let God take it from there. And with that, I'm going to thank you so much for sharing this time with me and being part of my life for the last three days.